Hey folks, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Liam here. Just a quick note before we start. Uh, this is a repost of the recently recorded uh, monthly session of the Black Lives Matter and the Church in Australia panel that is hosted by the uh, Uniting Church Chaplaincy at Charles Sturt University in Port Macquarie, uh, which is headed up by Reverend Tawalofa Angalangi and the Social Justice Pilgrim Presbytery in the Northern Territory uh, through the work of Reverend Dr. Catalina Tahafe-Williams. Uh, the very beginning of the intro was cut off or not recorded, um, so we pick up just as Catalina is kind of introducing this month's topic, uh, and then you'll hear me introducing the guests, and then you'll hear this wonderful conversation uh, that is at, obviously on the surface very much explicitly about the uh, preamble to the Uniting Church Constitution, but I think even if you have no kind of commitment or experience to the Uniting Church, I think there's a lot still in the conversation uh, about, you know, how our ecclesial documents sometimes in the attempt to move toward a post-colonial or decolonial uh, posture can sometimes end up reinscribing uh, some of the things they're trying to get away from and then what kind of work we are called to do uh, next and, and just, the, you know, the nature of uh, compromise and resistance that is often faced um, in the preparation of these documents and how that shapes them and, and their final form and, and how that help is helpful as we are informed on how we engage them. But anyway, you're going to get to all of that. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this special episode that was recorded live uh, this Sunday just gone, the last Sunday of October. And as you'll hear at the end of the uh, recording, uh, there is another one coming up at the end of next month with Anne Patel Gray uh, talking about Indigenous theologies. But for now, I'm going to hand over to Catalina to talk more about what this month is all about. This month, today, we continue the conversation. We started in August on the preamble to the United Church Constitution, and we are led by the Reverend Dr. Gary Deverell and the Reverend Dr. Chris Budden. So, Gary, great to see you again, and we invite you now to open our session with an acknowledgement of land and prayer. And by the way, I'm speaking I'm from the land of the Larrakia people, and greetings to all. Thank you, Gary. Thanks, Catalina, and uh, lovely to be with you again uh, for this uh, discussion. So I want to acknowledge that uh, wherever we are on this continent, uh, and even on some of the islands around the continent, um, this is uh, Indigenous land, uh, lands of Aboriginal nations, uh, Torres Strait Islander nations. Um, I'm coming to you today from Nam or Melbourne, uh, and this is the land of the Kulin nations, including the Wurundjeri or the Woiwurrung, where I am. Um, I am a Trelaway man from uh, northeast uh, Luchawitta or Tasmania, and um, I'm very happy to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. I uh, am going to just introduce the team now today. Uh, so me, I'll start here. Uh, I'm Reverend Leah Miller. I'm a Minister of the Word in the Uniting Church in Australia, currently living and serving on the lands of the Gayamagal people. Uh, and I'm just about to start properly at the Forest Kirk Uniting Church. Uh, I also host the Love, Rinse, Repeat podcast where I interview theologians, ministers, artists and activists, and it's often where you can find these conversations after the fact. Mm. Uh, and I've just started my uh, become a PhD candidate through Charles Sturt University. Uh, Reverend Tawalafa Angalangi is an ordained deacon in the Uniting Church, currently serving as tertiary chaplain at Charles Sturt University. 
As a theologian from Oceania, uh, Loffer hopes to see more theological work from those at the grassroots of Pacifica. Loffer believes the church is accountable in creating space for truth-telling and active listening and sees this webinar as a response and collaboration for bringing faith, justice, and academia together. Uh, Reverend Dr. Catalina Tahafe-Williams uh, is an Oceanian womanist theologian. Catalina has served the World Church and Ecumenical Movement as a leader in public and contextual theology, ecumenical missiology, interfaith relations, racial justice, and multicultural ministry. She holds degrees from the University of New South Wales, London, and Birmingham, UK, and is currently serving as social justice consultant for the Pilgrim Presbytery and minister at Nycliffe Uniting Church in the Northern Territory. Uh, and we are grateful to Reverend Dr. Gary Deverell, who's returning, uh, who's been on this panel a few times now that you might have seen. Um, and this is a return after an important discussion that was started in August, uh, focusing on the preamble to the Uniting Church in Australia's constitution. Uh, Gary is Vice Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Divinity. Uh, and yeah, we've had him before and his book Gondwana Theology is well worth picking up and checking out. We also welcome for the first time, Reverend Dr. Chris Budden. Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris is a quote-unquote retired minister in the Uniting mm -hmm. Church in Australia uh, and a former General Secretary of the New South Wales ACT Synod, who spent his last two placements working as a support person for the Uniting Aboriginal and Islander Christian Congress. He was chairperson of the working group that developed the preamble. Uh, Chris is also the author of Following Jesus in Invaded Space, Doing Theology on Aboriginal Land, 2009, and Why Indigenous Sovereignty Should Matter to Christians in 2018. He teaches theology and politics in reconciliation at United Theological College and living as a Christian on Aboriginal land at Broken Bay Institute. He is an adjunct faculty member at UTC and associate researcher at Charles Sturt University. And later on, we might hear a little about one of those courses uh, from Chris, which would be interesting to because I know it's happening again soon. Uh, so for now, I'm going to hand over to Catalina to, to moderate this next little bit, but welcome to everyone and folks watching at home, welcome to you all too. Thank you so much, Liam. Um, thank you again to Chris and to Gary for your willingness to lead our conversation on the preamble to the UCA, UCA Constitution Part 2. Um, part 1, as Liam says, we began in um, August, and in that conversation, Gary um, expressed some concerns um, about the preamble, which then led us to reconnecting with Chris and leading us to this moment um, where the two of them are here to lead the conversation. Um, and I'm going to be moderating the dialogue between Chris and, um, and, and Gary. And what I am going to do is to ask Gary first to reiterate his concerns again that he shared with us in August. Um, and then um, after Gary has spoken, then I will ask Chris to respond um, and I'm going to ask Chris to respond in two parts. The first part is to give a very brief and precise account of uh, how the preamble came about and how it was developed. And then secondly, to give his considered response directly to Gary's concerns. So I'll be moderating in that way until I feel it's ready, we're ready then to turn over uh, and include um, our panelists and other others who are joining in in the conversation. 
So without further ado, could I please invite you, Gary, to articulate and reiterate your concerns about the preamble? Thank you, Catalina. I'll, I'll try. Um, <laughs> part, of, part of this exercise will be remembering what I said last time. <laughs> um, I think my primary concern is that um, although it's very, very clear uh, that those who put the preamble together are doing so out of a genuine intention to be inclusive of uh, the perspectives and the experience of Indigenous people, and certainly to uh, acknowledge the, the damage that has been done to Indigenous people through the process of colonisation and fess up to that. Um, I, I feel that the preamble only goes some way towards addressing the full extent of what colonisation does and colonisation means. Mm. So for me... Um, the preamble, although it intends to decolonise uh, perspectives in the church, actually succeeds only in doing the opposite um, because it still assumes that the Christian view of the world is, you know, ontologically, metaphysically, um, the, the view of the world which explains all things. Um, and therefore, it says, for example, um, in uh, paragraph one uh, of the preamble, uh, when the churches that formed the Uniting Church arrived in Australia as part of the process of colonisation, they entered a land that had been created and sustained by the triune God they knew in Jesus Christ. That had been created and sustained by the triune God they knew in Jesus Christ. Now, so the first, the first line in the preamble, which is supposed to be inclusive and a decolonisation, decolonising act, reiterates that the colonists' view of God is the correct view of God. Mm. So the colonists' view of God as a triune God known in Jesus Christ is the God, the correct view of the divine, if you like. Then in the second uh, paragraph, it goes on to say, um, that Aboriginal and Islander peoples or, or First Peoples um, uh, continue to see themselves as traditional owners and custodians, sovereign, since time immemorial. Now, that phrase, time immemorial, is actually a phrase that comes from um, legal discourse in this country. It's not actually, uh, it doesn't actually come out of theological discourse or out of Aboriginal or, or Islander discourse. It comes out of, a, out of legal discourse and it basically means since before we had records. Um, so it, it kind of writes a, a, a kind of a, a legal perspective uh, onto what's going on in that second paragraph. It also says some theological things. It says that, that through this land, God, that is the God identified in paragraph one, um, the triune God, the God known in Jesus Christ, is the one who sustained First Peoples in this country. Um, so, again, if, if you read that through um, a decolonising lens, what I would say is that it's proposing that the colonists were right about God. 
and that if any god was active in this land, it was the god that colonists know uh, through their European religion, their European perspective. Mm -hmm. Then in the third paragraph, um, which is, I think, the most problematic paragraph uh, myself, there's a claim that First Peoples had already encountered the creator God before the arrival of the colonisers. Now, who is this creator God? Go back to paragraph one, the triune God known in Jesus Christ. So it claims that we had already encountered that God. We, that is Aboriginal and Islander people, had already encountered that God before the arrival of the colonisers. Now, that's a really, really big claim. It's a really, really big claim that I think is very difficult to sustain. Um, now, I know that there are Aboriginal people around, uh, many of them who were brought up in a mission situation or their parents were brought up in a mission situation and they are still in the church, who were taught that. And so that is what they believe. But I think increasingly from the perspective of um, um, of you know the project of decolonisation, which has gathered a pace in the last uh, 20 years or so, and particularly in the last 10 years since this preamble was written, um, I think that's an inc that looks like an increasingly problematic claim. It's, it goes on to say the spirit was already in the land revealing God to the people, that is the triune God known in Jesus Christ, to the people through law, custom and ceremony. Now, again, it's a big claim. I'm not sure how you can sustain that. Um, everything I know about Indigenous knowledges, including the knowledges that come through my own country and the elders that uh, interpret that country, would not use any of this sort of language at all, um, would, not, would not talk in this way whatsoever. Um, the same love and grace that was finally and fully revealed in Jesus Christ, finally and fully revealed in Jesus Christ, sustained the first peoples and gave them particular insights into God's way. Um, so what it's saying is, as far as I can see, and Chris may correct me later if I've, if I'm misreading this, but what it seems to me to be saying is that Although Aboriginal religion or spirituality, custom, ceremony, ritual, however you want to talk about it, law, um, looks very, very different to European religion with its talk about a triune God and, you know, the revelation in Jesus Christ um, and so on, that actually underneath it all they're the same. So there's a claim that there's some sort of deep ontological or metaphysical structure here and that while there may be differences on the surface, they're just appearances, they appear different, but underneath um, they're the same and the language of the triune God and the revelation in Jesus Christ is more accurate, <laughs> is ontologically more accurate so that the Aboriginal expressions of spirituality and the meaning of the land and the, the relationship with in, relationships and community, etc., are in fact secondary expressions of that deeper underlying thing, which is actually 
the triune God, the revelation in Jesus Christ, which has come from Europe. Now, from where I stand, that's an act of imaginative colonisation um, because it posits that the European version of reality, of theological reality, of ontological reality is primary and that the spirituality of Aboriginal people can be, has to be absorbed into that in order to come to its fullness. It has to be reinterpreted within this larger framework, which is Christian theological language, uh, in, order to, um, in order to reach its zenith or its fullness of, of being and ex of expression. And that, my friends, is what colonisation is. Mm. Um, colonisation is the absorbing of smaller cultures and languages and communities, less powerful languages and, culture, and, and cultures into a larger one because of a view that the larger one is actually the right one. That is what colonisation is. And so from my point of view, particularly paragraph three, but also the, the paragraphs that go before it, do that and therefore it's an act of colonial imagination. Um, now, the, the, the rest of what's said I'm not too unhappy with because it actually just goes to the question of whether justice is ever going to um, um, happen in this country. And the Uniting Church in this preamble expressed it as a desire that it, that it would happen. But, it don't, you know, and obviously there's a lot of things in here that um, are aspirational and that's fine. Um, but the other thing I guess I'd want to point to, um, and, and it's probably worth discussing somehow, is that there's a kind of a what I would call a sort of ecclesiastical Darwinism built into this, this whole project, it seems to me. The Uniting Churches with a small U and a small C are seen as having done the wrong thing. But the Uniting Church with a capital U, because it's now entered into a covenant with the UAICC, is doing the right thing. And therefore, justice is now possible. And we look for a day um, at the end, paragraph 9 um, and 10, uh, we look for a day when uh, we can share a destiny together, praying and working together for a full expression of our reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Okay? So the mark of our reconciliation is when we will all be together in the cultural linguistic framework of the coloniser. Okay? And that is seen as the end point somehow. Um, now, Aboriginal sense of time is obviously problematised by this, uh, and I've, I've said all that, those kinds of things before. Um, I, I think a little bit more work needs to be done on how eschatology and Aboriginal notions of time might actually uh, talk to each other in a way where one doesn't absorb the other. Um, but, you know, the details of that I, I kind of went into last time. So I think that's it. I think, I think I'll just say leave it at that for now. Um, hopefully that's reminded a few people of what I said last time and has um, and as, as, as just kind of opened up a few um, directions that our conversation can take from, um, 
for here on in. Thank you very much, Catalina. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you. Um, now, Chris, could you um, give us first uh, a brief outline of um, how the preamble was developed before you give your um, direct response to Gary, please? Catalina, I think they're actually the two things are intertwined. Okay, absolutely. Because I think uh, it's, I, I need to say, I need first of all to pay my respects to the Awabakal people on whose sure. land I, I live um, and to Gary and to any other Aboriginal people who may be listening to this. I, my interest in this, of course, has already been declared. I was the convener of the working group. But, but I also want to say that as a second person, it's not my task to dispute whether or not this is a colonial reading, because that in itself would be an interesting colonial exercise, mm. telling a, a, an Indigenous person that they'd misread the colonial intentions uh, of the document. But, but I think it's really important to understand that the preamble is, in fact, uh, not an abstract theological struggle. Uh, it's an engaged struggle by a group of people to uh, create a document that... Uh, is about their engagement in the life of the Uniting Church. So, so it, it was set in place by a group of Indigenous Christian people who, who were wrestling with the way in which they were both Indigenous and Christian and the nature of their belonging in the life of the Uniting Church. The, the context, in a sense, was, was the three questions of the nature of the relationship between First and Second Peoples in the Church and how First Peoples get, get priority in that relationship. It was about the very nature of self-determination in the life of the church. You see, the preamble was one of a, a number of proposals that were brought to the 2009 Assembly that spoke about the relationship between Congress uh, and the Indigenous people who belong to Congress and the church. So it's, it's one part of that ongoing struggle. And the third part of it was how could people claim to be followers of Jesus and not keep being told that they had to leave their culture at the door? So how could they actually affirm the things that they believed? So, um, so, so, so I think it's important to understand the nature of the document, that, that the very first draft of the document, which was has been changed and, and altered in ways that Gary highlighted. I mean, the, the original document didn't talk about Jesus at all. The original document was very, nor the Trinity, I should add. <laughs> Part of the negotiation, I think, um, is, is understanding that in, no, in negotiating this, if, if, it, if it has a post-colonial dimension to the, the preamble's dimension is that it destabilises meanings that in a sense in classical post-colonial theory it uses stuff to destabilise stuff and, and it may have then drifted over to where Gary says and it may not have succeeded in that at all. It may have remained more colonial mm -hmm. than post-colonial. Mm -hmm. But from the point of view of those who are engaged in it, who were trying to find a better space in the life of the church, what they were trying to do was to destabilise the meaning of the church's language about God and knowledge of God in a way that would enable them to live in that space and do theology differently as members of the church. So, so they weren't attempting even to read 
their tradition in a pure way, they recognised they were reading it as Christians. There, there is no pure reading um, of tradition. There's no sort of set in the past reading. We all reread, and they were reading out of out of that kind of space. I, I, I think one of the good illustrations of that um, of what was going on was was it, Gary last time talked about um, language, and and the probability that we would be better off with a kind of poetics um, in in this kind of language space, and and I think that's probably right. I think that that kind of language um, would have been more important. But the reason for the language, and, and language is, again, choice of language and uh, is, is always contextual, and the choice of, of the nature of the language had to do with the very first reason why this happened, and that was that in the middle of a debate about whether Congress had been disrespected by the 2003 Assembly in the debate about sexuality, Congress threatened to leave the Uniting Church and after a series of conversations, there was a renewal of the covenant conversation and in the middle of the renewal of the covenant conversation, Congress came back to the church and said, we believe that it's important to put something in the law of the church. We're fed up with you people writing stuff down, putting in your briefcases and walking away and or somebody finds loose language uh, and poetic language for church people is often loose language, um, that somebody will misuse and in a year or two's time it'll say something that we didn't want to. So that the shape of the language, which probably overstates what you would often do theologically and in these dialogues, is language that people wanted to use to make sure that people didn't fudge the future conversations. So... so it's 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 that sense of how deeply um, contextual I think that it is that's important to understanding this conversation and and also important to deciding how how you judge what I think are fair comments from Gary about the nature of this as a colonial document that is um, particularly in Gary's comment last time that he thinks it probably ought to be taken out and thrown away. And, and people's response at the time, which was, well, maybe we ought to get on board with that conversation. Because I want to finish by saying to people that I think my request is simple. Before engaging in a conversation about whether the preamble should be removed or is irretrievably colonial, it's really important to talk to the first people in the Uniting Church who both put the preamble together who provided the very first foundations and three years of constant conversation that went into law groups in the Northern Synod with some of the finest Indigenous theological minds in that part of the world and, and more closely traditional minds uh, in that part of the world, that we need to at least recognise that and recognise that for a whole lot of people, this has been an eye-opener in terms of their capacity to wrestle with both sides of their own life. Uh, Gary's right. They're mission people. They're people who carry that tradition and that reading, but they do, and they do belong to the church. And I hope that people who are involved in this seminar will understand that before we get into any other conversation, people need to sit down with that group of people 
And I know Gary's sharing a table with somebody fairly soon who would sit in that space um, and have that conversation. Why, why did people know that they were entering into Sorry, let me just make a point. There was a point in the, there was a point about six or eight months before the preamble was approved where there were significant changes that Gary's pointed to. The use of the language of Trinity and the use of Jesus, which are both markers of Christian faith. And there was a sense in which at that point the preamble shifted from being an attempt by Indigenous people to put something unilaterally in a preamble to a negotiated kind of settlement, if you like, to a negotiated space where they had to work out whether they could gain enough in the conversation, dismantle and disturb enough of the church's position to make it worthwhile staying in the conversation. They chose to stay in the conversation despite the risk that Gary's really highlighted quite well. And, and my only comment is that it's, you've got to have those conversations before it goes into any other space. Mm. So that's that's my mm. offering for today. I'm grateful mm. for Gary's comments. I'm mm. I'm doing some postgraduate work on the preamble, and he he keeps disturbing me enormously <laughs> as I do this work, uh, for which I'm I'm grateful if I don't beat him up sometimes. But um, but thank you. It's been very helpful. Ah, oh, thank you so much for that, Chris. Um, I w I'm going to go back to Gary, um, and see if he has. Uh, any other responses he wants to make? Um, it, it's, uh, I, I think uh, he, hearing Chris's um, comments around the context and the conversations is, I think, really, really helpful. Um, mm. And I would want to, um, I would want to affirm what Chris has said about mm. that, uh, and 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 the need to uh, talk to the people who were involved in putting it all together. As, mm. as a key part of any process of, you know, reformation or, re or revision, um, if you like. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, as, uh, I'm as prone as the next person to hyperbole when it comes to saying things like, you know, we should just remove it and throw it away, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so um, let's recognise that for hyperbole. Um, it does seem to me that, Around the time these conversations were happening, um, I, I, I had a strong feeling that the full diversity of the of the Congress was not was not really deployed uh, towards that conversation. Mm. I, I feel like um, I feel like people like myself who who didn't grow up in a mission situation um, and who had had a little more Western education and perhaps lived uh, you know in the urban parts of the country. Um, and, and some of us like that, we weren't we weren't really even aware that the conversation was happening. Um, we weren't we weren't really invited to the table, um, which is a bit of a shame, I thought, uh, because there was I, I think there are some some helpful perspectives that we might have offered uh, to, to that. Um, so I recognise that you can't talk to everyone. Uh, mm. That's just that's just absurd, obviously. But I, I, I guess my lament would be that um, that perhaps some of the emerging um, younger um, kind of individuals who have in fact probably since um, actually left the church, mm, yeah. um, you know, weren't, weren't really engaged at the time. 
Um, mm. And, you know, I, I recognise that it's difficult to do that. Um, mm. But I was one of the more obvious ones, I, I, I would have thought. You know, I, I was ordained, I had a PhD, um, I was publicly engaged in theological conversations within the Congress, uh, within the theological forums that were starting up just before that time and things like that. Um, and there were others as well that I, I felt perhaps, um, perhaps uh, you know, could have been consulted a bit more. So I, 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 guess, I, I guess my sense is that um, there, there was a dominant culture in the UAICC and the dominant culture was consulted, you know, uh, but we but but we, we should never make the mistake that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people agree with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we're as diverse as anyone else, um, mm. and uh, you know, I, I just think that that it, it's important to sort of um, because occasionally the prophet is in the minority, you know. Mm. Sometimes mm. the prophet is the lone voice. Uh, and, and it's worth having a talk to the lone voice from time to time. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with them, um, um, but um, yeah. I, I think engaging them in the conversation can be quite helpful. Yeah. So I think that's uh, that's really all I all I have to say there. Um, yeah. I think it's also worth noting that that I'm offering these com- these comments now into the conversation by invitation. I don't actually have a right um, to to speak into this conversation um, by virtue of being a member of the Uniting Church or a member of the UAICC uh, anymore. You know, so so I don't I don't have a right uh, by virtue of those memberships to to contribute to this conversation. I'm 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 doing so by invitation. Mm. So, in a sense, it's not really my conversation to have. I recognise that it's that it's a conversation that the Uniting Church has to have, including the UAICC. Um, so, my comments need to be taken in that context um, as well. Thank you so much, Gary. Um, I, I'm just keeping my eye on the time, and it looks like we're now at that point where we can open up the conversation to the wider panelists and also to folks who have zoomed in. Um, And I want to encourage anybody with any comments or questions to please um, don't be afraid to put it through to us. Um, And of course, for Gary and and Chris, feel free to, you know, to join in and say um, anything that you need to say, because uh, it's very important for us in this webinar to hear from the two of you in this, even in this wider conversation. So can I go to, Lofa and um, and Liam to see if they have anything to say, and if any one of us knows of any comments that's come through because I haven't seen it myself, uh, feel free to let us know, please. Lofa, do you have something you want to go first with? Um, thank you, Gary and Chris. Um, I guess my question is um, how. Um, I guess the question is is for everybody. Um, who, who do you think has benefited from this document of the preamble in the church? Um, who has benefited the most from it? Um, good, yeah, good question. That's my question. Uh, and I'm still trying to gather my head around 
all the information that you've given today, um, which is just remarkable. So thank you both. Is there a question for, for you, Chris? Look, from, from where I sit over the last few years, I, I think um, there are two answers to that. The first is that there are a number of people who are part of Congress who have found this quite a, um, a permission-giving document, if you like, people who are committed to the church and have been who found some space in it to start thinking about their own traditions much more deeply. Um, and there have been a number of conversations over the last few years where that's that's been right. And, and I know at the moment there's some people starting to think about how do you have a conversation now about Jesus, for example, and the very nature of Jesus if you start to own your own traditions. And, and that's why it's important, I think, that people like Gary are around, somehow mm. around the sides of those conversations or mm. in the middle of them, to, because that, that I think... I think the Uniting Church has not been as, as as good at these conversations as, for example, parts of the Baptist Church or even the Catholic Church. There's been a kind of slowness in getting into the formal theological conversations in Congress. Um, and, and I think this starts to open that up a bit. I think when the church finally takes the, the preamble seriously, even in its present form, there's enough in it to terribly destabilise the kind of European Eurocentric um, understanding of theology. When when you put a statement in there that says that basically other people understand God, even if we have the debate about which whether that's you know the same God or different, it it actually does break open. I think the possibility that the church, and I think for Pacific Islanders and Koreans and other people who are not Europeans, this is. This has actually also created some space for people to say, maybe we can figure out how our tradition and understanding of God enters into a dialogue with our Christian faith better than it has. And, I mean, there's been a massive uh, development in Oceania uh, theological conversations over the last while, and I think in the Uniting Church there's some of that potential. So, so there's really three answers. I mean, for Indigenous people, it's one. For other people, it's it's another. And I think for the whole church, there's a there's a there's a deep challenge in the preamble to the way in which we've understood, particularly God's relationship to creation, and thus the very meaning of salvation. But we haven't unpacked it. We, ref I think, we're simply refusing to unpack it. But it, but it is a deeply challenging understanding. Mm. Thank you, Chris. That's, that's very helpful. Liam, did you have anything that you want to ask or comment oh, there's, on? There, there's so much. I think it's mm -hmm. been a very rich conversation. One thing I was curious of is, so it's very interesting to talk about here at the drafting process and particularly the level of, I guess, compromise um, that had to occur, right? That conversation of, okay, do we stick with what we how we really want this or do we... Um, make those changes, particularly around the language around Trinity and Jesus. And I'm, part of me is curious, first of all, if there's within United Church archives and documentary history, whether the earlier drafts exist in a way that is accessible, because I think there could be some very good work done in looking at the two, um, and particularly looking at, okay, you know, almost, you know, in terms of thinking about, you know, decolonizing, what were the moves that sought to, I guess, you know, 
box in or shape um, that, you know, and, and what was the, you know, established church trying to manoeuvre, right? You know, by the way, looking at the documents together, I think some really interesting work could be done. So I guess part of it is, yeah, a bit, you know, do, does does that exist um, in, a, in a way that can be found? And and I guess, um, yeah, I'll start with that. There's some other stuff I'm thinking about too. Liam, I'm actually writing that chapter at the moment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have all those documents sitting behind me, each one of the mm. drafts, each mm. one of the progressions, and and a sense of trying to figure out, I mean, what happened in the drafting was the Congress came forward with a draft. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was an assembly committee working on constitutional change and its task was narrowed to, to pick up the, the draft that came in and to work through the whole question of a new preamble. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was developed further in conversation with the Congress National Executive and then was sent out to the church for conversation. And then there was all sorts of conversation came back um, and criticism. And the criticism came back both about the theology and, of course, there was a terrible lot of kickback about the idea that, one, that you'd put Aboriginal people at the forefront of the conversation anyway, two, that you would make confession about things and didn't say that missionaries were all fabulous people. So there was there was kind of a, a multitude of conversations going on at the same time mm-hmm. and and some real kickback from a couple of synods about why don't we have the two markers of, you know, what we acknowledge to be Christian, the Trinity and, and Jesus in much more stronger language. I think, I think the Congress, to be fair, probably did let the Trinity stuff go because that's, yeah, they just let that go because early on the language was in, in paragraph one was, just, was created, was land that had been created by the creator God. There was no mention of Trinity right mm. up until about, uh, March, I think, 2009, so very close. Mm. Um, and the Jesus thing, I, I, it's a statement that kind of church people, including Indigenous church people, look at and go, oh, that's about Jesus, we believe in mm. Jesus, yeah, we can mm. stick that in. Mm. Um, because people have multiple readings. It's in there, but do we mean what they mean? <laughs> so, so it seems to me that people let it go in because what it meant to them was not what it meant to those who wanted it in there. Mm. So, you, but of course, when it's in there, it's then you're into a different kind of kind of wrestle. So, yeah, it's yeah. a very it's a it's because it, it went back and forth as well. Because you, you had a development, a development, a development, and then the 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 legal reference committee got engaged. Mm. Um, they came up with a whole different plot. And then the general secretaries got engaged, and this is where the mm. colonial stuff gets interesting because mm. you know, they obviously had an agenda, and mm. and it, it gets all it got all messy and got negotiated and mm. sorted through, and I mean Congress signed off on it. Yeah, the week, the week before the assembly. Mm. Uh, and yeah. yeah, so I mean, I'm like I suspect. Well, from what I'm hearing, Chris, and and to Gary as well. The, the um, Aboriginal folks that were involved in the drafting of the preamble um, may have been hemmed in at two levels. One, but by their own compromised position as Christians, because, you know, if we're reading this from a colonial, post-colonial, you know, lens, then, you know, um, I would say the same for, for myself as a Pacific Island Christian, 
you know, it's very hard to do, you know, to, to, to step back and look at it from a purely, colo you know, colonial, post-colonial lens when I am also a Christian. But so they were hemmed in by that, but also hemmed in by what, uh, you know, um, Liam uh, calls the established church, the, you know, and the theologians and, the, you know, the, the dominant church voice that were uh, wanting, uh, you know, things to be drafted in a particular way, uh, you know, with the theology and all of that. So in that sense, that you know, they they were in a very, very difficult position, weren't they? And and then so that's one thing that I want to say, and, and hopefully Chris can respond to that and maybe even Gary. But the other thing is then if you're writing something, Chris, is... Is it then not possible for you to say at this point in the evolution of the preamble, um, if I can use that word, um, that it, you know it is it is time to have a to have to relook at it? You know, there's there's space to have another look at the preamble and have an, a conversation in the way that that Gary would propose. Uh, let me start with that one rather than the other one. The, the question is whether the preamble is the right space to have the conversations that that Gary talks about because uh, they're yeah, – I mean, there's such important theological conversations and, and the preamble is such a difficult space to have them in. And it had them in the first place because people were deeply committed to having something in the law of the church. They were just sick and tired of people not respecting stuff. I mean – it 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 really was a conversation about how do people how do people have a genuinely hybrid identity? How do people both claim their traditions and the Christian story, mm. knowing that the reading of their own story is is I don't know whether I want to use the word compromise, but it's certainly impacted by the fact that they've committed to another story. So they can't read their story anymore. I mean, they can't, nobody can actually read the ancient story anymore the same way because people live inside another framework. You know, it's a, it's a bit like it's a bit like the early church when it adopted Greek philosophy as the reading platform for the Christian story. Mm. It it so changed the story. Mm. Well, when when Aboriginal people you know, took when they read backwards, and Gary's right, when you read backwards into your own story, you, you, so, yeah. But I think what people were trying to do was build a hybrid identity. Mm. Uh, and so, so they, it wasn't this or that. It was a how do, I, how do I live with both the things I'm committed to yeah. uh, with some integrity. And, yeah. and the judgment for, for them to make and people like Gary to make and not me is whether they've compromised uh, one or the other of them too badly <laughs> um, in, the in the hybridity, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gary, do you have anything to say to that? You're on mute, mate. Am I on mute or is it no, Gary? Sorry, um, you know we've been doing this for two years and I still haven't got uh, I still haven't got got my act together on it. Sorry about that. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, to the general point of hybridity and the fact that you can only begin in the middle of what's happened rather than, you know, from a sort of privileged, pure point of view from, you know, any perspective, actually, um, that's true. And so people begin to interpret their own history um, and to interpret um, their own um, aspirations uh, in the middle of... Um, the story that they're already enrolled in from the moment they're born, you know. And for Indigenous people in this country, um, we are enrolled in a colonial story from the moment that we're born, mm. um, which means that um, that the, the power relations are fundamentally unequal from day one and continue to be unequal uh, from that point onwards. And, you know... What I think everyone needs to understand about Indigenous people is that um, because we are a colonised people, we cannot step outside of colonial practices, colonial language, um, in order to see, as it were, from a God's eye point of view or even from a sort of pre-invasion, um, uh, you know, so-called pure Indigenous point of view, um, what is actually the truth, you know. Uh, we can only come at the truth from the point of view of people who are colonised, you know. And so that means that the, the unpicking that needs to happen is painstaking work and mm. not many of us are actually terribly up to it. <laughs> not many of us uh, have the luxury yeah. to be able to give sustained thought to this because we're just fighting to to survive, to stay alive in this country, mm. you know. Yeah. So, um, so that that that's the reality. That's the reality, and and uh, it's important that people understand that. Um, the that what that means, I think, in terms of documents like like the preamble, is that um, you know. Most most Aboriginal Christians, people who identify as Christians, will re will read this stuff and they won't have any idea what it's about. No, you know, no no no, no idea what it's about. Um, we'll see it as basically a, a white document. Ooh. Are you frozen, Gary? Is, is anybody uh, ex, um, experiencing some technological problem? I think, like just me? A, I think it's just a Gary's end. I think he's frozen. Oh, oh okay. Um, do we want to? Yeah, just... well, Lofa said that there was a question. Lofa? Great. Yeah, there's a question there from Robin Whitaker. Mm. Um, she said, Thank you for the rich conversation. I share some of Gary's concerns, although wouldn't have framed them in the same way, and this is not a criticism. I'd be interested to hear the panel reflect on what we aspects of interreligious dialogue might be relevant for this conversation. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that we've seen a shift in interreligious dialogue from claiming we all worship the same God with different names to recognising mm. and respecting difference so that we might learn from one another. How mm. might that apply here? Mm. That's a great, that, that's a, thank you very much. 
uh, Robin, that's really true. Um, you know, we, knew, we, we need to look at that. What, what do you think, you guys? Uh, um, you know, all of you, anybody? Mm. Can I say that I just think that's been part of my struggle with Gary's conversation is that I think it sounded like he was talking about interreligious dialogue. Mm. But, but this is not at one level interreligious dialogue. This is people um, not arguing about whether Christianity and traditional religious life sit where they sit. It's people who sit in both of them. And, and that shifts, that, that, that makes a difference, I think, to the conversation. It's not, mm. it's not an abstract conversation about two parallel conversations or even two parallel understandings of God or even if you can call God in one space. It's how do people who sit in one space and who've decided to enter another space still talk about both those spaces? Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things maybe where it's tricky is I think because I think you're right. Like, there's, there's a sense that you could see this. Okay, this is a a Christian interpretation of, of that of, of culture, right, and of yeah. story, and and, and this. Mm. I think maybe part of the problem that runs into is the document itself feels very universal. Yeah, right? like in the, it's making claims about the. It feels like it's making claims about the whole of the pre-colonial history, story, culture, mm. um, where, as you say, it's, it's more about, okay, how does a particular group within a church understand it and bring it into dialogue, um, which is interesting there. I think that's what, so you could read it and go, oh, wow, the Uniting Church are making all these kind of colonial assimilationist, like, you know, um, claims about the whole thing. Um, from the document's face value, but through the, you're saying, I guess, about the process, this is actually a specific group of people who are making this, and whether it's the problem is that the language doesn't kind of necessarily reflect that, um, I think is, is yes, is, is, is where, where it's a kind of a, an interesting, um, the wrinkle emerges, um, that is this a claim about the nature of reality? Um, and then which I think a lot of the Gary's points like, you know, you know, they are straight away, or is this a thing about a kind of a personal witness of, of a, yeah, of that kind of hybrid journey of, of, a, of a lived religiosity of how mm -hmm. this, you know, these fit together for, for a group um, and how that informs the life of the church or should, should mm -hmm. hopefully inform the life of the church. So I think, yeah. And I think maybe that just to kind of pick with Robin's point a little bit and something I was thinking about is like, I think that's something Christianity has, like an inherent struggle within Christianity um, and particularly with Christianity's relationship to Judaism mm. um, where, you know, at the worst it's saying, cool, we see your tradition and we actually, we can tell you where the final fulfilled um, mm. location of its meaning is in Jesus Christ. And Jews would say, no, well, no, that's not how, that's <laughs> not how you interpret this religion. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's not correct. Um, and, but there's a difference to saying, well, within, you know, my religiosity, there's, you know, my lived religion, my experience bring, brings me to this sense that these texts have some relationship to Jesus, the Messiah. You know, and I think there's, that's, that's two very different conversations in how we think about interreligious dialogue, Judaism, and personal experience of how these things fit together. And I wonder if there's a, something of a dichotomy here and, and, and maybe we learn from how we think about those things as distinct conversations 
um, in this kind of context too. Liam, I think one of the challenges of the preamble, which we don't often see, is that in fact, in some ways, challenges the universalizing claim about Jesus the Messiah. Because it's it's really interesting. I mean, it, although it picks up words late, you know, about about revealed in G, finally and fully revealed in Jesus, but the little dig at the end of it is and gave them particular insights. <laughs> there's a, there's a kind of there's a kind of shifting, and and there's a shifting when you go into creation and place so much emphasis on creation and land and relatedness that it seems to me undermines a whole lot of the assumptions around Christian faith and universality and all that stuff, potentially in there, I think. Mm. Gary's back with us. Yeah, sorry, I, sorry folks. Um, for some reason um, the power went out and, uh, you know, for, for, for 30 seconds or something and... Um, and I, and I had a bit of a scramble to get back online, so apologies for that. <laughs> Just for you know, Gary, we're looking at um, Robin Whitaker asked a question in the Q&A, which I, I think you can see as a panellist, so that's what we're kind of discussing. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting point that she made. So maybe you can finish what you were saying before and then move on to what uh, Robin Whitaker said. Gary? Well, that's a challenge. Uh, can I remember <laughs> what I was saying before? Um, <laughs> look, I, I, I think I think that I was then going to say that um, I, I guess most of the Uniting Church people that I know personally would be at the sort of theologically liberal end of the Uniting Church, if you want to use that sort of um, um, you know perspective. And I'm not sure that they've got the right message from the preamble, you know, the, the message that was intended from the preamble. A lot of those people who are kind of theologically liberal um, to the point where I would I would say they are possibly sort of, um, um, you know, all, all, religions, all, all religions point to the same God kind of people, um, what, what, what they seem to have got from the preamble is that... Um, is that you know in, indigenous religion and um, Christian religion are pretty much the same thing. Uh -huh. So it, do, it doesn't really matter what the differences are, and we don't actually have to spend sustained time contemplating any particular tradition and what that means in its own terms, because you know always lead to Rome, Rome being God or the divine or something in some way. And so I often have people, um, you know, ask me questions out of an assumption that what the preamble is doing is saying that all, all religions are the same, um, to which I have to respond, well, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's what's actually going on either in the preamble um, or indeed in the religions uh, or the religious traditions that are being referenced in the preamble in, you know, in brackets in a fairly unequal way in my view, but nevertheless are there. So um, now I, I can't tell you whether the preamble has had another effect uh, in other parts of the Uniting Church because I actually don't know anyone <laughs> who comes from that sort of end of the church, so my experience is very limited. 
so that was all. That was in in response to that sort of question about um, how the preamble has has helped or hindered or mm. opened things up or not uh, for, for 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 people in the church. Mm. Um, did you see the question from Robin about interfaith and interreligious um, relations and dialogue and how we might be able to see this conversation from that perspective? Um, I didn't, but um, but um, I, c- I can certainly have a go at the interreligious uh, dialogue thing. Um, it's, in the, it's in the chat, Gary, if you want to open the chat. Yeah, I've opened the chat, but I don't see it. It's the so, last one in the chat. Okay. I, I think the chat's been reset by the okay. fact that I came the in, power went off, came yeah. in late. I don't because know why it, it that touches is. A bit, it touches a bit on what you were just saying, that, like, that is definitely what you're saying, the all roads lead to God, the one mountain, mm. and I want to get up into the fog, it's all the same, is kind of becoming moved out of the interreligious <laughs> conversation sphere and it's more recognising and respecting difference and how we might learn from one another without flattening uh, tradition. So it definitely just ties into a lot of what you're saying and I guess how thinking of the discussion more in that kind of a, a, a framework might actually help what yeah. we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um. I mean, the, the the thing is that 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 all you know every religious tradition has its own theological has its own theology of religions. So it's not like we all share a kind of metaphysical common story, out of which we then enter into theological dialogue about the specifics of any particular tradition. Um, whether we're conscious of it or not, everyone engages in interreligious dialogue from a set of theological assumptions about what the, about what theological dialogue is you know uh, and so that's that's part of the that's part of the difficulty of of what we do at a practical level um, you know to invoke a sort of pragmatics which some people um, might be surprised to hear from me but uh, you know at, at the level of pragmatics it seems to me that what, what is at least required in any kind of interreligious di- dialogue um, or intertraditional dialogue is, um, is is a sort of what I would call a deep listening, um, you know, and, and deep listening. Deep deep listening is the kind of listening that you can only get to if you've been in a conversation for some time. I think mm-hmm. because you have to kind of tune in to the cadences of the language and the um, context and, if you like, the, the the sort of heart that is there in the other in the conversation. And I think it takes a while to get there. The, 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 the metaphor that I would use is, is that of marriage, actually. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when, when people fall in love, um, there's all sorts of assumptions about what the other person means and what, what, they, what they're saying. But it's all filtered through this kind of um, this kind of great feeling that you have, right? Mm. Um, and so you, you tend to interpret everything through that sort of um, experience. But when time goes on and the the hormones stop pumping quite so much, and so the feeling level starts to kind of plateau out a bit more, you you actually start to hear what the other person's saying in its genuine otherness. You know, 
and 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 that maybe they didn't mean what you thought they meant by whatever they said, you know, and so on. And so you actually have to start dealing with the reality of the other person rather than one's version of that other person. Um, and it seems to me that any kind of religious, uh, interreligious dialogue has to follow that similar similar path. And it, it, it takes a while to get there. You can't, I often say to um, groups of, of essentially, you know, white people um, who, who ask me to go and talk to their church or whatever, you're not going to be able to hear what Aboriginal people are saying about um, what's important to us um, in an hour. <laughs> you're just not going to be able to hear it because everything that you hear will be filtered through a whole heap of assumptions about what Indigenous people are on about. And therefore those assumptions will get in the way and you will reread everything that I say or that another person says through that set of assumptions. Um, and you'll go away with a with a sort of warm feeling about having in, engaged in sort of um, you know dialogue with um, Aboriginal people, and there's brownie points in that in that for you. Um, so, I, I guess what I'm calling for in this sort of space is 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 a deeper conversation that you can only get to by by continuing to return to the campfire. To use that metaphor that I've used a few times before to return to the campfire, to sit around it and to, and to really listen. And as I've said before, it's incumbent upon the people who have the most power just by virtue of their membership in the sort of colonial um, um, culture to do the most work in that, to do the most listening because their voices are already heard all the time. You know, they're heard in government, they're heard in mm -hmm. church, they're heard, you know, in, in, in advertising, on the radio, on the television. Their voices are ubiquitous. Um, but the voices of Indigenous people are not. Um, and there's, there's, there's a, it's not just a danger, but it's almost a certainty that because of that, um, those who belong to the dominant culture will always be interpreting what Indigenous people say in their own terms. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to get beyond that is to have a sustained um, conversation and to commit oneself from both sides to a sustained conversation. Now, I've got to tell you, that's really, really costly from the Indigenous side, mm. really, really costly, yeah. you know, to, to, the point of, to the point of sometimes making us sick <laughs> yeah. because... Because it's, it, it seems to take a long, long time for, for people from the dominant culture to even start to understand and really hear what we're saying. And, um, and, and, it, and it's actually quite heartbreaking to get, you know, three years into a, into a conversation and to realise that even the most basic stuff has not really filtered through yet. Um, it, it's really, really heartbreaking. I was saying to someone the other day, my, my, my ministry supervisor, actually, I was saying, look, you know, um, I feel like every day I get up in the morning and I have to, I have to um, prepare myself to be misunderstood. <laughs> you know, that's a terrible thing to have to do every single day. 
but it's 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 what I do. Uh, it's what I have to do every day, mm. and it's what every Indigenous person you know has to do every day. Mm. You know, just by virtue of the power relations which are already in place, and to which we are all born, into which we are all born and inducted mm. uh, from day one. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's 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 Gary's pragmatics of into into religious dialogue. For what it's worth. Thank you, Gary. Um, uh, so um, as we come to we've come to the end of our time together, um, and so this is a time. Um, I invite our panelists to share their final comments. Uh, so, might start with um, you, Catalina, and Liam, then myself. Yeah, oh, um, and and Chris, of course. Um, oh, am I am I on? Can you hear me? Yep, yep, yep. Oh, yeah. So, um, I guess my. When when I hear you, Gary, saying, um, you know, uh, that you wake up every morning preparing to be mis misunderstood, um, you know, I, I I have to say that 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 is an experience that um, you know people who are not of the dominant culture, and especially if um, English is is not your first language, that, that is a um, an experience that you know, that people like that resonate with. Um, but that's not to diminish, um, you know, I, I absolutely agree with what you say. Um, and um, it's important that we all recognise that every Aboriginal person live with that reality on a daily basis. What I, I want to, to say as, you know, as a final comment is that I, I really think that it would be important to continue this conversation so, you know, in some way, you know, we need to find a way to, to continue this conversation, keeping in mind, you know, Chris's uh, portion about having, um, you know, a, a, a conversation with the, um, the people who drafted the preamble. So that's, that's all I want to say. But thank you to Chris yeah. and, and to Gary. Yeah, thank you both. I think, you know, it is, it is, like, it's amazing to think of how much has changed since 2009, right, and the way these conversations are happening and conversations around race and, and the ongoing colonial violence and, and, and all that. Like, I think, you know, obviously not new conversations, but, like, the, the, the way they've, you know, come to the zeitgeist, the way they've been engaged, you know, hitting with generational change and other things. Like, and and it's that thing of you know, as we then think about these ongoing conversations is that like, where do they happen and in what form, you know, because to, to put something into a preamble of a constitution takes, as we saw, years, and then you get there and it's, you know, not in the way maybe everyone wanted it, but and then you just, everyone's tired. <laughs> and, you go, and, and so the prospect of going again is so wearying, but, and also there can be this fear, you know, this this temptation to think like, oh, good, it's in an official document. So it's, it's done now. Um, mm -hmm. But as we said, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's this ongoing disturbance, this ongoing reorientation, repentance, new learning that has to happen in prolonged relationships. So I think, you know, as we continue to think about 
all that's been raised and what this calls on the church to do, it's seeing it as a whole of church, ongoing, uh, uncontainable uh, path and process. Um, and so I think, you know, thinking of, of form and where it takes us is very important um, as, because it, yeah, it needs to disrupt and disturb ongoingly. Um, and you can get because who knows how these conversations, if, if whatever we put into pen now or put on ink now, like what will we be looking at in 2030 and thinking of, you know, how that's changed, how the context has changed and shifted again. Um, so I think that's just really, um, uh, you know, helpful for us to be thinking that this has to be ongoing and we can't think that we settle it at any point. Um, so, yeah, that's the thought. Thanks, Gary and Chris. Um, for such a rich conversation. Um, it's interesting when uh, we talk about this on keeping this conversation going and then Gary talked about um, waking up in the morning and preparing yourself to be misunderstood and that's exactly where my head was, uh, thinking, keeping this conversation going and preparing myself for the stress and um, thinking, finding ways to be constructive to keep this conversation going as often as, you know, because I'm often being misunderstood for anything that you put forward um, in my work and my leadership um, in the church. So those are the two things that's running through my head. However, I find this conversation has been so rich that it's, it's giving me a lot of hope um, and I know there's great people in this room and in the conversation, uh, the, the people who have joined us today. Uh, so that is something hopeful for me that there's hope that we can do some, make some changes in the church. So thank you everyone for the um, contribution and for today. Thank you. Uh, so Chris and Gary, the floor is yours. Uh, two things. Um, Gary's right, I think, when he says about the Uniting Church being theologically liberal. Um, and, and I think uh, part of the reason that the preamble got through was that people actually live in a liberal political kind of human rights framework. And they said, mm -hmm. well, if that's what Aboriginal people want, then we should let mm -hmm. it have them, let them have it um, as a justice issue rather than a theological issue. So a lot of the mm -hmm. theological nuance gets lost. So what you have is, I think, a church that's caught between that and the post-liberals and, and the kind of neo-Bartians who, who run a completely different kind of take on this conversation. Um, but I think the preamble actually uh, finds a way between those two options. I think it, it, it raises some really interesting, challenging theological conversations about genuine diversity um, and inclusion and and dialogue, uh, and, and I think one of the points of an ongoing conversation is not simply to keep rehashing the stuff that Gary and I are doing, but, but to actually raise the question, so what, what theologically uh, is it opening up for, for second peoples in the life of the church? You know, what, what can it say to a church that's committed to justice and inclusion and stuff is is there a rather than a political liberal theological foundation is there actually a different theological foundation in here about the understanding of God 
potentially that would make a better foundation for the church's commitments to be itself. And the, and the second thing I want to say is I think one of the greatest things that a group can do at the moment in the Uniting Church is to, is to offer some support to those people who are trying to do Indigenous theology. It, it takes money and support and encouragement and all sorts of things, and, and somehow we've got to get space for people to be able to do the work that they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Fred, thanks. Great. Gary. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with Chris. Um, it's... Uh, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people who are members of the dominant culture don't really understand how hard it is to to do this work. Um, oh. you, there's kind of this expectation that we'll do it as as you know on our own time with our own money. Huh. Um, you know, uh, in 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 the middle of incredibly complex lives, um, and. Uh, and we'll be able to do it um, in a way that um, satisfies, you know, the, the, the theological college kind of person as real theology, you know, um, and all of that. And it's it's just incredibly costly, incredibly costly uh, to do that. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, Speaking only for myself, uh, you know, um, it's it's kind of broken me uh, so many times, and uh, I, I recognise that I've become super cautious <laughs> uh, to get engaged in conversation because of that. Um, yeah, and and super cautious about saying yes when a genuine opportunity comes my way you know because i've 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 kind of become gun shy <laughs> mm-hmm. so um yeah so yeah I, I i just you know we we do need to dialogue and 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 white people are always saying we do need to dialogue but please white people recognize that it's not an equal conversation mm. we we come to the conversation without the same resources uh, that you do, uh, both 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 you know intellectual resources, uh, financial resources, and emotional resources. Mm. You know, um, we we are we are traumatized people, uh, yeah. and, and therefore it, it's not an equal conversation. It's not an equal playing field. Um, and I think that if there is some recognition of that. Uh, then we can at least have another go, mm. but um, but I, I you know I, I I don't feel as hopeful as some other people about this as you know um, I just don't think the evidence is there mm. uh, to be as hopeful as some others would like to be. Oh. That's just the truth of the yep. situation. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gary. Um, it's now my um, task to mention that the webinar in November next month on the 28th, we are going back to focusing on Indigenous theologies with Dr. Anne Patel Gray leading us um, in that conversation. So we will look forward to that and it seemed to be a, a good, um, you know, 
connection from what Chris just said and from what you've just said, Gary, I mean, I guess, um, you know, to continue to hold a conversation on Indigenous theologies, um, you know, is is all part of, it, it links to this very difficult issue we've been talking about with the the preamble. Um, yeah, so that's that's next month. And, you know, we look forward to seeing um, as many of you there as, as possible. Um, thank you to Gary and Chris for giving us your time today. We hope that you will be open to joining us again in the future. Um, of course, Gary, um, you know, um, you're, you're going to be someone that we will constantly call on. And um, I hope you don't mind. Uh, and then hopefully, Chris, you, you know, you'll be open to joining us again. Um, when we call on you. Um, I'm now going to pass on to Liam to close with a prayer. Thank you very much, both you, um, Gary and Chris, and all of you who zoomed in. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this opportunity to have this conversation. We thank you for the wisdom and insight experiences that have been shared we thank you for those who worked on this preamble document and lament the treatment and and pushback that was received mm. and pray for any wounds and broken trust that lingers because of that we thank you that within the document we can be troubled and pushed. We thank you for the space and permission and uh, fruitfulness for further conversations that it enabled. Mm. We lament how little has been done. We give thanks for that which has happened. Pray that we will be buoyed by the spirit to be bolder in the call from it and from the covenant document and from many other conversations in our church that we would be bolder in following and heeding and working for justice in resourcing, boldly resourcing more work in this area. Mm. Pray that uh, we would heed what Gary said in terms of both seeking to enter into intimate and trustful relationships, but also knowing the cost it takes. And so entering mm. with humility with openness and seeking to remove our own inter, you know, our own filters that seek to bring everything into something that fits. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you go before us in all this, that you call to us and that you remain with us. We can be bold for you abide and we abide in you. And so we pray for such boldness. Pray for Gary as he goes on with his work and particularly mm. he and uh, Naomi as they continue uh, to set up such a wonderful initiative uh, with the University of Divinity. Pray for Chris in his ongoing studies and mm. teaching uh, and pray for Catalina and Lotha and myself in our ministry context and for uh, Emma in her ongoing work and mm. pray for all those who have listened mm. that the words said today will linger and continue to provoke and challenge. Mm. In your holy name. Amen. Amen.